We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode of Inside Golf Podcast is presented to you by RickRunGood.com. All of the stats, tools, and info that I will be referencing today can be found over at RickRunGood.com. I'm really proud of what's been going on over there. We just hired Michael Cavalunas, somebody who I've had on the podcast before over to handle our ownership. And for my money, he's the best at ownership in the business. He's going to come on the podcast this week to talk more about what he's going to be doing over there for us. There was such a long period of time where it felt like people doing DFS content did not really even talk about ownership that much. It was really more about touting players more than it was about touching on the game theory aspect of it. And obviously I've been banging the drum on this podcast for quite some time, but with the whole Wednesday article too, like I, the whole point of that is I don't give any picks. I don't give any stats. It's all about weather and ownership. That's the only thing I talk about and understanding game theory and trying to predict how people are going to be building that week and kind of going all in on, this concept in you know the article that I wrote over there and the stuff that I tend to talk about on the podcast, I wanted our website to have the best ownership projections in the industry. And that's why we brought Cav on. And there's a ton of stuff going on with the custom model as well. We've got almost 40 inputs in there already, and we're going to be adding even more soon. Uh, the fact that the site also has the stats from all the majors when other places neglect that, like that is so massive in terms of being able to input that data into your models and actually have the most updated and best data. And even just looking at player pages too, like we have all the stuff from the majors, like I mentioned, we have all the stuff from the European tour too, which I found really useful, not to mention a very active Slack channel where you can reach me for questions at any time. All of my written work, that big Wednesday DFS article, I'm just really proud of what we've been doing over there and the effort that we, especially Rec, mainly Rec, have been putting in to make this website really special and absolutely imperative to have if you bet golf and play PGA DFS. So head on over to rickrunkits.com, sign up today, make sure you type in code Andy when you sign up. That is the important part, and we'd love to have you as part of the team. All right. It's been a minute. I'm sorry I didn't do a podcast last week. I'm honored that people were actually upset about this. Uh, I had just been traveling a lot, had a bunch of onboarding stuff with Blue Wire. By the way, very excited to have announced that. Um, and I was really behind on my research, and I just didn't want to put out something that wouldn't be my best. Uh, so I apologize for that. But a lot of stuff has happened. I'm stewing now. A lot of stuff has happened since I last did a podcast. I've got a lot of live stuff to talk about. Like I said, I've been stewing on some of this stuff. I did a podcast where I spoke about live about a month ago, uh, and people seem to really enjoy it. I mean, I got way more positive feedback on my perspective on live than what I usually get from when I break down a course. So... There are a couple points that I wanted to make on Live that I don't think too many other people are talking about, um, and I'm going to try and speak about this completely objectively and just explain what I think is happening here instead of taking a side and really even saying what's right or wrong, and people can make up their own minds about this stuff, right? 
Um, last time I did a podcast on Liv, I got messages saying that I was too tough on Liv and I'm a PGA Tour dick writer. And I got messages saying that I was way too easy on Liv, um, which I hope means that I'm doing something right. So all I'm going to do is lay out what I am seeing and hearing right now. Um, and people can make their own conclusions about it. But this is what I found the most interesting to me. So when I did a podcast last month and I said, you just wait until Trump Bedminster. This is going to be completely politicized, just like a Jared Kushner's history with MBS. Trump is heavily involved in Liv. He has a complete axe to grind with the PGA. I said this over a month before Liv Bedminster. He's got a complete axe to grind with the PGA for taking away his course for the PGA Championship and the PGA Tour for removing Doral from the rotation as well. And he loves the game of golf, actually kind of unlike the Saudis. He's been heavily involved in the game of golf his entire life, and he has wanted to be relevant in the game of golf probably more than any wealthy public figure that I could think of. I mean, just listen to some of the stuff he said after they took away... um, Bedminster from being the host of the PGA championship. Uh, he cares about it way more than MBS. Um, he bought Turnberry, which was on the, a great course on the open Rota, um, forever. And once that turned into Trump property, the RNA has said, we're good. <laughs> uh, by the way, I would bet you any amount of money that Turnberry is on the live schedule in the next two years. And what I predicted was going to happen at Liv Bedminster played out way less subtly (laughs) than I had ever imagined. Um, Trump was there talking to the players about how they should take the money. You know, it's funny. I've heard a few people say like, oh, it's golf. Why can't we just, why can't we just separate the politics from golf? It's like, dude, Liv is actually asking us to do the opposite, right? Like this is all strategic. They actually, they're asking us to not do that. They don't want us to do that. And let me explain to you what I mean by that. So just to give some context, Jared Kushner left the White House. When Jared Kushner left the White House, he created his own private wealth fund, Affinity Partners. Now, Prince Mohammed, MBS, almost immediately invested $2 billion in Affinity Partners, which by the way, in like the private equity world, that is very, very rare for a firm that is just starting up to get that big of an investment without any proven track record of any investments just on inception, right? And Affinity was last valued at about $2.5 billion. So that means that MBS holds $2 billion of the $2.5 billion in that private equity firm. Now, insert Brian Windhorse meme. Why is that? Why would MBS give Jared Kushner's private equity firm $2 billion? Well, there are a couple reasons. Let's rewind to Jamal Khashoggi. When the CIA concluded that MBS conducted the murder of an American journalist, who, who was the one that stood up for MBS as the sitting president of the United States? Donald Trump. Go back and look at the quotes from Donald Trump, and even more so Jared Kushner, when the Khashoggi murder happened. So that was part of it. It was a bit of a thank you by MBS for Trump's allegiance on the Khashoggi stuff as a sitting president. Yes. But there was it, it was a lot more than that too. And I've said this on the lad podcast last podcast too that Trump is the current betting favorite to be the next president of the United States. I personally am pretty bullish on his chances from everything that I've heard from people that follow that stuff. Close, more closely than I do. And I follow politics really closely. Uh, a lot can change between now and the election. Uh, but what's not going to change, what I can guarantee you right now is not going to change, is Trump's relevancy in the Republican Party, regardless of whether he even runs or not. Even if he doesn't run, you are fooling yourself if you do not think that whoever does become the Republican nominee Put it this way. There's no way to come out of that party right now if you're not closely aligned with Trump. That could change. We see political parties morph over time, over the course of history. But right now, and for this upcoming election, 
That's just how it is right now. Now, MBS is obviously very aware of this. And if Trump does win, or even somebody in Trump's will say contingent or orbit or whatever words you want to throw in there, sphere of influence, it is very advantageous if you are Saudi Arabia and your long-term plans, which is, again, a whole other podcast. The Athletic does a pretty good job of laying what Saudi Arabia is really doing this golf thing for in their article. So I'd encourage everyone to check it out. But I will just say, if you are Saudi Arabia, it is very advantageous to have the sitting president of the United States in your quarter. MBS has already invested billions of dollars into the Trump orbit. And again, yes, part of it was a thank you, but most of it was also thinking about the future. So here's what Donald Trump on his social media platform, Truth, said. All of those golfers that remain loyal to the PGA Tour, to the very loyal, disloyal PGA in all its different forms. I think he's, that's him saying it's the PGA for taking away Bedminster and it's the PGA Tour for taking away Doral. They're, bo- they're both bad. We'll play a big price when the inevitable merger with Liv comes. You get nothing but a big thank you from PGA officials who are making millions of dollars a year. If you don't take the money now, you will get nothing after the merger takes place and only say how smart the original signees were. He later posted this on True Social, just arrived in Live Bedminster for Live Golf, record money being handed out, great excitement, come out Friday, Saturday, Sunday to watch the great play by the best players. So essentially promotion, very unsubtle promotion at this point. Now, here's why this is important. The next thing I'm going to say, it sounds like I'm patting Liv on the back. And regardless of my personal distaste for the golf product, I've always tried to talk about this objectively and call it like I see it. And I think they do deserve some praise for from a marketing and planning standpoint with what they're doing here with their involvement with Trump. I personally think that their relationship with Trump is a stroke of genius. I think it was planned not I think it was planned. I know it was planned. It was tactical. It's a really smart move for them, at least in the short term. And I'll explain why. I've already alluded to Trump's influence, both politically and culturally. There's a very large portion of the country, and we can debate how much, but it's not small, that this guy is their absolute ride or die. And some of those people are already golf fans. Uh, that will likely soon, if not already, will be changing their allegiance to where they watch golf. Many of these, many of those people are not. But what you do have when you have Trump be so forward-facing in this is that you are immediately, which again is very, very rare for a quote-unquote startup to be able to say this, you are immediately gaining access to a large demographic that will now be a part of this and care about this that aren't even golf fans. And it was on full display at Liv Bedminster, which essentially turned into a political rally. They were way more interested in chanting, let's go Brandon, than they were cheering for the actual golfers. And what do you do by having Trump immediately be your guy? Well, yes, you gain access to that demographic, but A... That demographic normally wouldn't have cared about golf, but now because they care about Trump and they care about Tucker Carlson, and now you get Greg Norman and Bryson coming on Tucker Carlson, well, guess what? You can say that only 70,000 people watched Live on YouTube and 2.5 million watched The Rocket Mortgage. Well, guess what? 4.5 million people on average tune into Tucker Carlson. He's the most popular cable host in the U.S. That's double the amount of people that heard Greg Norman and Bryson on Tucker Carlson than watched the Rocket Mortgage last week. So yeah, way more people are still watching the PGA Tour than the actual live golf product, but it's never been about the golf for them. It's about power, which I feel like should be way more obvious to people at this point. And B... 
what you are also getting with Trump is that you are asking people to take a side and golf is essentially turning into part of our culture wars. Just look at the profiles on Twitter of the people that are super, super pro-live. It's not really that subtle. By the way, it's not even really supposed to be. So what's become so funny to me is that the demographic of people that watch golf and care about professional golf and work in professional golf and play, and even play professional golf before any of this live stuff started skewed largely right. And that's why suddenly if you want the PGA tour to succeed and live to fail, your liberal has become like the oddest development yet with this whole thing. But that is the whole point of getting Trump is to make it oppositional. It's you versus us. How did Trump become president, right? It's making people choose sides and live as confident that with Trump, they're going to get a lot of people that already watch the PGA Tour on their side now. Because again, I can't harp on this enough. Like, the people consuming the PGA Tour before any of this live stuff started, like it skewed far more right than left to begin with. And yes, Trump is polarizing. And yes, there are going to be people that are going to hate live more because of his association. But guess what? Those people weren't going to support live in the first place. But now what you're doing is, what Trump is so good at is effectively being able to form a narrative and mobilize people around that narrative. And if you look at the language being used by the players who left the PGA Tour and how Liv and and how Liv is talking about that about the PGA Tour. The the language that Liv is using, the language that Greg Norman is using, the language that Trump is using. It's the same way that Trump was able to come president, right? It's about creating distrust in longstanding cultural institutions. The PGA Tour has mistreated you. It's mistreated its fans. It's mistreated its players. You've been underpaid. You haven't been listened to. You can't trust them. They're stealing from you. That's it. That's the game plan. Just go back and listen to some of his campaign speeches. It's the same thing. Live is just a vehicle. And in terms of mobilizing a population and creating opposition and anger and frustration in large institutions, whether that institution be the United States government or the PGA Tour, you can plug any of them in. It's the same presence. It's the same idea. And guess what? It works. <laughs> it really works. It works really well on people. And that's why, at least right now, when Liv is in its infancy, I think hitching your wagon to Trump is really shrewd. I really do. Because now millions of more people aren't just going to care about you. They're also going to feel something. Because whether it's bad or good, Trump elicits emotion better than any other human being on the planet. And that creates conversation and that creates news and dialogue. And that is what Liv has been able to accomplish by getting political. And let's just say that Trump wins. You think the lawsuits are bad now. The PGA Tour is going to be up their ass with legal issues because the DOJ and some of the people in the DOJ were already Trump appointees now bear a lot of responsibility to the sitting president of the United States. And it's going to be a really strange, unprecedented reality if the sitting president of the United States is that involved in American sports. But again, for the 100th time, I'll shout this from the rooftops. It's not about sports. Live really isn't about golf at all. It's never been about golf. It's never going to be about the golf. That's not why it exists. And that's why it's so hard for me to wrap my head around the people that can't see what's actually happening here and are of the mindset like, oh, well, this new golf league. Competition is good. More pizza is good. There's Saudi money invested in Uber. Now there's Saudi money invested in golf. Awesome. What's the difference? Well, again, 
something I'm shocked people are having such a hard time understanding is that the difference between Uber and Lev is that competition is good for the transportation industry and competition is bad for sport. Competition in sport dilutes the overall product, right? How would you feel if Steph Curry went to go play basketball in Saudi Arabia and Tom Brady was go, going to play football in Europe, right? Competition in the transportation industry creates for a better all overall product for people. I don't understand how that's so difficult for people to wrap their head around. So when people are like, oh, dude, why aren't you outraged about Uber, bro? Well, for me, I can't speak for the people that are outraged about everything, but for me, it's never actually been about where the money's coming from. It's been about what the money's doing. The PIF's investment in Uber wasn't a political power play by the Saudi Arabian government. Trump is not a part of Uber's marketing strategy. And even more importantly, Uber is unquestionably net positive on society. It makes people's lives infinitely more easy. Whereas Liv is going to make the overall golf product worse, if that's not already obvious to people. And I guess there are some people that I guess just like like having more golf on. I don't get that argument very much. I imagine that having two NFLs on at the same time where half the good players were in one league and half the good players were in another league, like that sounds terrible to me. Sport is the one thing where you want all of your talent in the same place. And that's where the, you know, the money is everywhere argument is just kind of lazy to me. Cause it's like, yeah, I, there's a lot of hypocrisy in terms of the outrage about where the money's coming from. I'm not talking at all about where the money is coming from. I'm talking about the intent of the money because the intent of the Saudi money invested in Uber and Apple is not setting out to destroy something or cause disruption. It's actually making our lives better and easier. But with Liv, there are all these casualties, right? There are repercussions. It's completely changing American sport. And the fans lose. The fans are the losers. And that's why I wish people would just take a second to actually think about what they're arguing. Again, whole other podcast here on the differences between investment structuring and different corporations and which ones have political ramifications and which ones serve different purposes. Like I said, whole different podcast. But I don't understand how some of this stuff isn't more clear. I want to finish by getting back to the actual golf. Not that the golf is supposed to matter. But I just talked about some of the reasons I thought Liv was acting really strategically with the Trump stuff. Here's where I think they're whiffing. Again, not that it may matter in the grand scheme of things, but I say this completely genuinely. I've made a career out of breaking down golf courses. It is what I spend more time on than nearly any other activity. Uh, And I've spent time watching Live London. I've spent time watching Live Portland. And I've spent time watching Live Bedminster, even though it was kind of like pulling teeth for me and I had zero interest in the actual golf. But I wanted to make sure that I caught some because I don't think it's right to be critical of something that I'm uninformed on. Uh, And I think a lot of people are doing that on the live debate on on both sides where they're arguing things that they may not even understand. So I didn't want to come on and talk about the actual golf of live with actually spending some time watching it. So I tried to soak in some of these courses. And I could not believe how bad they were. I found the setups to be extremely bland, extremely homogenous, with very little strategic value, which, by the way, I feel the exact same way about 75% of the courses on the PGA Tour. So it's not even like an anti-live thing just for the sake of being anti-live. Go back and listen to 90% of my podcasts on the PGA Tour. I think Tory Pine should be nuked off the planet. I think given the piece of land that it's on, it is single-handedly the laziest designed golf course in the country. I have a ton of issues with Bay Hill. The golf course that we're about to talk about, TPC Soundwood, it sucks. It's terrible. I'm still waiting for an apology from the city of Dallas for whatever the hell TPC Craig Ranch was. 
So the point of this is that this is a real opportunity for Liv, right? 80% of the golf courses on the PGA Tour have zero identity and zero strategic value. It's target golf. And then you get to Liv and it's like, hold my beer. You want homogeny? Here's golf utopia where every fucking course and hole is the same. At least on the PGA Tour, there's some agronomical variety. It's completely homogenous on the Liv Tour. I guess you're getting some Bermuda grass when you go down to Florida, but they've got the same guy. They've got the same guy setting up the golf courses the exact same way every single fucking week. (laughs) Every single week, the rough is two and a half inches and the greens are going to be running 11 on the stem. And I get it. I guess part of that is because you want to keep your players happiest obviously right like isn't that the big sell with live but it's like fuck man in terms of like a product this feels like a really missed opportunity and look if you think i'm missing something i'm always willing to question my perspective on this i feel like i can have respectful conversations with people on both sides of this but like if i'm missing something with the actual golf going on at live and you are a fan of the golf going on at live. Tell me what you like about it. I say that completely genuinely. Tell me what your favorite hole at pumpkin Ridge was and why you think I'm saying that sarcastically. I'm not, I want to know if I'm missing something with these actual golf courses. Cause like I said, I don't think that everybody that's making the decisions with live is stupid, but this is one I'm having a difficult time understanding. If you were watching this stuff and you were like, wow, this golf at Centurion Club is so much better than an average PGA Tour course. Look at the strategic value. You're seeing guys get to hit different types of golf shots that you wouldn't get to see on the PGA Tour. Look at how different and improved this is. This hole at Centurion really stood out to me. This hole at Bedminster really stood out to me. Like, If you feel that way, I'm really curious to what it is you like about the golf courses because I'm always open to the idea that I'm missing something. I change my mind on golf courses all the time. I have my like best golf courses played. The list is changing all the time. But when I watched them and when I spent time looking at them, I found them arguably worse than the average PGA Tour setup. And this is one of people's biggest criticisms with the PGA Tour. Like I said, where it's just target golf every week. None of the courses have identities. 75% of them have this very homogenous design philosophy with the TPC network. And it's a big reason why the product feels so stale. And lives just like cool. Here's that same shit sandwich. Hope you enjoy. And don't give me the, I tweeted something like this. And a lot of people are like, well, a lot of the best golf courses would turn live down. I don't know about that. I mean, yeah, Liv is never going to Pine Valley or Cypress Point or LACC or Shinnecock, but that's that's bullshit, man. There's way too much money. There are there are some interesting golf courses that would. I don't want to talk about this for an hour and get into the golf courses I would go to. They should actually hire me as a golf course consultant. I would say no, but they aren't putting any effort into this. Which is fine and goes back to my main point about how the actual golf is irrelevant. But that one kind of feels like a layup because that's an easy way to improve on what feels so stale about the PGA Tour. And this is also part of the reason why in the gambling and DraftKings community, these are terrible events to bet on. And I, listen, I get hindsight is twenty twenty, but you can check the receipts on this. I have the receipts for my group messages. The group think around let's bet Bryson at 10 to 1 at this live event was one of the stranger things I've seen in the community in quite some time. Everyone was just like, okay, let's do this 10 to 1. It made no sense to me. I get that he was okay at St. Andrews where he maybe had to hit six real iron shots all week. But the reason why it didn't make sense to me, and here's the problem with betting live in general. 54 holes 
has a much, and this also explains why people are confused why all these people in shitty form are winning these events. 54 holes has a much lower hit rate of identifying the best golfer in the field. It's basically adding 25% more variance to every single tournament, which is a lot over time. If PGA Tour tournaments were 54 holes, Scott Piercy would have won the 3M by five strokes. Scott Piercy is terrible, and he was not the best golfer that week, and he deserved to be exposed. Tony Finau was the best golfer that week, and he was able to show that over 72 holes. And that's why better players tend to win no-cut events, because over the course of 72 holes, if you guarantee everyone 72 holes, the larger the sample size, the more predictable of an outcome, right? So again, you have people wondering, how the hell is Carl Schwartzel winning? He's been terrible. How the hell is Brandon Grace winning? He's been terrible. How the hell is Henrik Stenson winning? He's missed 15 out of his last 20 cuts over the last two years against PGA Tour competition. All those guys are playing like dog shit. And it's like, well, go back to what John Rahm said. Maybe golf tournaments are 72 holes for a reason. Maybe that system of 72 holes is actually pretty damn fucking good at determining the best player every week. Maybe this is why it feels like an exhibition. So am I saying that if the live events were 72 holes, would Patrick Reed and Dustin Johnson be holding trophies? Well, kind of. I'm not not saying that. I mean, it's something that I certainly would have bet on if they played another day. But I guess if you want to bet this, my advice would be to embrace the variance. You're just eliminating 25% of a golf tournament's predictiveness and sample size. So I don't know. (laughs) Um, And in case you haven't noticed, golf tournaments with a cut fucking rule. Um, Whatever that thing going on with Austin Smotherman was last night and this morning, I wasn't paying any attention because Adam Long and Jason Day and Harold Varner killed all my lineups earlier in the day. But man, that got a lot of traction in our community. Um, And that stuff is really compelling. And I said this on the last podcast. I love golf tournaments with cuts. I do. I don't think that's a broken concept. I didn't think that needed fixing. And if Liv is just like, we want to play it, we want to pay everyone, well, great. You can pay people for missing the cut if it makes you happy. I don't care. (laughs) Um, But there's a lot more there. I didn't even really get into the lawsuit stuff, but it's just like I was talking about this with um, Joseph Lamagna on a podcast that's going to come out in a couple of weeks where part of me is like, should we just not be talking about any of this stuff? Going back to the political stuff. And the other part of me is like, wait, like, how are we not talking about this stuff? <laughs> this is insane what's happening right now. And with the Kushner story, um, and Joseph tweeted this too, like no one in golf media wants to touch that. The New York Times has done some good reporting on it. Um, The Athletic did a pretty good story, which was a little bit more on like the background of Saudi Arabia and what they're actually doing by getting into golf. But, you know, I think a lot of people in the golf world, understandably so, are like, yo, this is so above my fucking pay grade. It's like, we're talking about foreign diplomacy now and international relations and business ethics and global politics and the nuances of antitrust laws. Like, I'm out. Like, I'm just, I am not going to do this. Or, you know, they're afraid to take a side or criticize the PGA Tour or criticize Trump or criticize Liv or whatever. Um, But the stuff that I've talked about is like, it's not even an anti-Trump thing or an anti-Wiv thing or an anti-PGA Tour thing or an anti-whatever thing. It's like, yo, this is what's happening and you can choose to ignore it. That's fine. But like, this is fucking bonkers what's happening in golf and it's fascinating to me. So I'm going to use my platform to talk about it and talk about it and try and do it objectively and you can formulate your own opinion on it. So that's all I got at the top. 33 minutes. I think last time we did 45 on it. So that's pretty good. We'll do another 30 on Memphis. But first, let's take a quick break. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate 
isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Okay, the FedEx St. Jude has been held in Memphis, Tennessee since 1958. It first came over to TPC Southland, terrible golf course, in 1989. In 2019, FedEx took over sponsorship of the WGC Invitational, so it turned into a WGC. Uh, But then for this season, the WGC part was discontinued, and it turned into the first FedEx Cup playoff event. So all of the best players in the world, pretty much, outside of the live guys, and Tommy Fleetwood is not in the field, which is a bummer because I really, I mean, I always like Fleetwood. But we've got a great field this week. Um, former winners, Abraham Answer won last year at 16 under in a playoff over Sam Burns and Hideki Matsuyama. Uh, Justin Thomas won in 2020 at 13 under, uh, Brooks Kepka won at 16 under in 2019, Dustin Johnson, 2018, Daniel Berger in back-to-back years, 2017 and 16. Then you kind of get into this when it was a weaker field and you got Fabian Gomez and Ben Crane and Harris English and DJ again. So interestingly, once this course turned into a WGC event and the field got a whole lot stronger, it's been DJ seven to one, Brooks 11 to one, JT 12 to one, answer 55 to one. So three out of the four years where it's had this quality of field, we've had one of the top three betting favorites wins. And even with answer, it's not like answer is some huge long shot that came out of left field. So you'll see once I get into the course, it's a pretty legitimate tee to green test. It's by no means a putting contest and great ball strikers should be able to separate themselves here. So don't be afraid to play the top of the board this week. Historically, it's been a course that has very much rewarded the best ball strikers in the world. Uh, remember, JT won this event, losing strokes putting. Um, so TPC Southland is a par 70, 7,233 yards on the scorecard designed by Ron Pritchard, 1987. The PGA Tour came in in 2004 and you know PGA Tourified it. 11 holes with water hazards. The fairways are zoysia grass. The only other zoysia grass courses we have are Trinity Forest, formerly host of the Byron Nelson, Eastlake, and then I believe some of the courses that we've seen in Japan. Um, They have a lot of zoysia in Japan. We also got zoysia at Atlanta Athletic Club and Bellarive, two of the PGA Championship venues over the past decade. Um, Zoysia is a really clean grass. The ball sits up really nicely. Um, even to the point where some guys like actually don't like it because it's so clean that you can like almost get flyers out of the fairway sometime. The rough is 2.5 Bermuda grass, which this time of year uh, in this heat is pretty gnarly and really difficult to create spin out of. Uh, the greens are 43,000 square foot on average, champion Bermuda grass, 11 on the stamp. Smaller greens here. Some of the other courses that feature these exact same Champion Bermuda, Quail Hollow, Sedgefield, Country Club of Jackson. So, TPC Southland. (laughs) Uh, I mean, listen, I would say it's an interesting course in the sense that it's sort of a hybrid of all these different categories that we see on tour. It's not a short positional club down course like Sedgefield or Wiley, but it's not long either. It's not a birdie fest. It's not overly challenging either it's kind of a lot like Valspar in the sense where it does have some features of a short positional courses but it's 
just long enough where you're going to see players hit driver, but it's also kind of just narrow enough where you can kind of take both strategies. It's a standard par 70 with four par threes. All of them measure under 200 yards, but that doesn't mean they're easy. All of them play to scoring average over par. 12 par fours, and pretty much all of them are medium length to longer par fours. There are no drivable par fours. The shortest par four on the scorecard is... 395 yards, just under 400 yards, and eight par fours measured between 430 and 490 yards. So definitely a longer course than what we saw at Sedgefield last week, where it had eight par fours in that 400 to 450 yardage range. By the way, I'm so glad I didn't do a podcast. The amount of times I heard people say 400 to 450 yard par fours is a key stat literally made me crawl out of my skin. That is a baloney stat. It's not even the least bit predictive. I could do a whole podcast on how useless stuff like that is. Actually, might have something like that with a very good guest coming up in a couple of weeks. Uh, Brian, <laughs> I wanted to make a joke there, and I I, uh, I whiffed on that one. Um, okay, anyway, a lot of medium length to longer par fours, which explains why almost 70% of approach shots come from between 125 to 200 yards. The two par fives are the two easiest holes on the course, but even the third hole only has a 33.5% birdie rate, which is low for a par five. Only three holes on this course have over a 20% birdie rate. So outside of the 16th, there's not a lot of true birdie opportunities on this course. There are more holes with over a 20% bogey rate uh, than there are with a 20% birdie rate, which makes a lot of sense given the amount of water on this course. So off the tee, TPC Southwind features the ninth most narrow fairways on the PGA Tour. The penalty for missing them is pretty severe. Last year, it ranked six out of 40 courses in missed fairway penalty. And the two prior years, it ranked inside the top three in greatest missed fairway penalty. It ranked six out of 40 courses last year in rough penalty. And each of the last five years, it is ranked inside the top 10 in this category. You do not want to be playing from the rough here. My explanation for this would be that it's really easy to score on this course from the fairway and really difficult to score from this course from the rough, which we talk about at a lot of courses like East Lake, which also features that sticky Bermuda rough in the late summertime. And I talked about it last week in my articles, but the true reason that a course like Detroit Golf Club can be bombing gouged and Sedgefield cannot both of those courses are nearly the exact same length is because of the difference between Bermuda rough and bluegrass rough. It is way easier to control spin out of bluegrass rough than it is out of Bermuda rough. Bermuda rough, especially when it's really hot is a lot more difficult to create a predictable outcome on. But what's interesting about TBC, TBC Southland, I, I apologize for getting in the weeds here. I didn't do a podcast last week. I'm foaming at the mouth with agronomy takes and, you're not going to hear stuff like this on any other podcast. So hopefully you're listening for stuff like this. Zoysia grass is really pure. It's almost like hitting off a mat, right? The ball sits up really well. Um, but I actually think that what that does is that creates such a stark contrast between the rough and the fairway here. Um, more so than most courses, right? Um, which again, is the same thing that we see at Eastlake, by the way. So I, I'm actually going to be pretty overweight on off the tee and accuracy this week. Here's a few quotes that illustrate what I'm talking about. Daniel Berger, you just have to hit it in the fairway. Otherwise, it's difficult to get close. Daniel Berger also called this the hardest course he's ever played in his life. So I don't know if he's the best barometer here. Here's one from Fabian Gomez. I'm the kind of guy that usually my driver is straight. And in this course, you know, many holes, you have to be really competitive with your driver. And also many holes you need to fade. More on that later in my pick to win. Ben Crane, I got it in the rough a number of times. I'll tell you what, this is no golf course to play from the rough. It makes it so difficult. You get a lot of flyers, hard to control the ball. Lee Westwood, it's quite tight. You need to drive the ball straight, although you know it does give you opportunities where it's not driver on every hole as well, but there's a massive premium on hitting the fairways here, you know, holes like 18, 12, if you're not in the fairway there and 15, you can make par very difficult. 
You've got to drive the ball well and hit it in the fairway. One last one, Retief Goosen. It's a golf course where you need to hit a lot of different kind of shots off the tee. It's not a golf course that you can just blast away at. So actually, a lot of holes with dog legs, you pretty much have no choice of stopping it on these greens with the rough. So add all of this together. Last year, 15 of the top 16 on the leaderboard gained to the field in good drive percentage. The only two players in the top 10 that didn't drive the ball well last year were Sam Burns and Paul Casey. Both gained over six strokes putting. So unless you want to be relying very, very, very heavily on your putter, you really want to be driving the ball in the fairway here. The year before, 17 of the top 20 gained in good drive percentage. Justin Thomas won and led the field in good drive percentage. He drove the ball great that week. And his ball striking overall was so strong that he was able to win losing 1.9 putting which you rarely see. Pretty much every single player in the top 20 drove the ball really well. So ultimately, I think off the tee is pretty underrated on this golf course. I'd prefer to look at good drive percentage over just pure driving accuracy because it's not like these fairways are tiny, right? Like you don't need to be like, okay, like we got to fire up Brendan Todd and Brian Stewart here. Um, And it's not like if you hit the ball in the rough, you are incapable of playing well, but you're you're adding a lot more variance to your outcome, to your range of outcomes. Your path to victory gets harder. Um, There are certainly players that have played well here that didn't drive the ball well, that didn't hit a bunch of fairways, but pretty much every single one of them gained a ton of strokes putting, which, again, like that's just going to happen every week. So you're putting yourself behind the eight ball here, not being able to consistently play from the fairway, in my opinion. Um, So there you go. I think driving is really, really important this week. 44.8% 44.8% of approach uh, strokes gained at TBC Southwind come on approach, which is massively above the tour average of 34.7. That number falls to 356 historically, but it's still above tour average. Um, kind of middle of the road in terms of approach difficulty, um, middle of the road in terms of greens and regulation percentage, kind of generally skews like on the tougher side. And 20.8% of approach shots at TBC Southwind come from 125 to 150. 23 come from 150 to 175. And 21.5 come from 175 to 200. All of the other proximity buckets are below tour average. So this is definitely not a wedge fest or a long iron course. Um, there are a ton of short to middle irons on this course, close to 65% of all approach shots come from 125 to 200 yards. Last year, it was really all about iron play, right? The top five on the leaderboard all gained over four strokes on approach, and the only two players in the top 12 that didn't hit their irons well, Cam Smith and Jordan Spieth, both gained over five strokes putting. Um, Prior year, same deal with JT. JT won because he drove the ball in the fairway, and he was absolutely electric with his irons. Brooks finished second, gaining 8.4 on approach and losing 2.7 putting. And again, the only two players to finish in the top 15 that didn't hit their irons well were Fitzpatrick and Xander, and they gained a combined 13.4 strokes putting. So add all this together with like the emphasis on iron play and the emphasis on driving the ball in the fairway here. Like It's very contrary to what we saw the last two weeks, where I do think that this is a course where it's easier for good ball strikers to separate themselves from tee to green. I think it's a course that really does reward great total driving and mid-iron play, and which is kind of unlike what we saw at Detroit Golf Club and even Sedgefield to a certain extent. So like with Detroit Golf Club, I looked a ton at putting, birdie or better percentage, players that raise their baseline on easy scoring conditions. Like You just want guys that are going to make birdies and can get super hot with the putter. Sedgefield is more about like comp course history and like identifying those players that really raise their baseline on these short positional golf courses. Um, and to me, TBC Southwind is a course where I think you really just want to look at like overall really good tee to green play, specifically total driving and mid iron play. We've seen it with the winners, right? Three of the last four years. It's either JT Brooks or, or DJ uh, around the green. TPC Southwind ranked 16th out of 40 courses last year in strokes gained around the green difficulty. Historically, it ranks as one of the harder around the green courses on the PGA Tour, which has more to do with the Bermuda Rough than the actual green complexes, to be honest. It ranked 
11th out of 40 courses in around the green difficulty from the fairway, 16th out of 40 courses in around the green difficulty from the rough, and 39th out of 40 courses in around the green difficulty from the bunkers. It generally ranks harder than tour average in around the green difficulty from the fairway and around the green difficulty from the rough, but it has some of the easier bunkers on tour. Here's a quote from Ben Crane. Scrambling around these greens is just incredibly difficult with the rough around the greens. Grainy lies. It makes some of these guys look silly. So this is definitely a course where short game matters, undeniably so. The greens in regulation percentage is low enough where you're going to have to scramble, and the degree of difficulty uh, on those around the green shots is on the higher side. The bunkers aren't very tough, but JT six in scrambling, Brooks first in scrambling, DJ fourth in scrambling, 2020, 19 of the top 20 gained around the green. 2021, answer was six around. All the guys in the playoff were top six around the green last year. Um, which leaves me with putting, which I just, like it ranked 36 out of 40 courses in strokes gained putting dif- difficulty. Um, here's a quote from Lee Westwood. The greens are immaculate. There's no excuse for not making putts. Daniel Berger, the greens feel like I'm just at home. You know, I love Bermuda and I don't even have to read the grain here. I just look at it and it's from years and years of putting on it. People have said that about champion Bermuda. I think it's, I think it's a a total tee to green test, right? This is a course, uh, that does a really good job of accentuating elite ball striking. Um, it's not a putting contest. The greens and regulation percentage is way too low. Uh, and we've seen players win this tournament losing strokes putting. Um, and the degree of difficulty of putting here is some of the easiest on the PGA Tour. There's not a lot of slope or, or nuance to these green complexes. So I will, of course, be looking at players that raise their baseline on Bermuda greens. But overall, I'm, I'm pretty underweight on putting. Uh, and then... I've kind of already alluded to scrambling as a stat that really popped up for me. And I think that's something you want to look at anytime you are on a course with a lot of water and a low greens and regulation percentage. And I, uh, I talked about this last week in the article as it pertains to Sedgefield, but you know, everyone talks about how you want to look at Bermuda putting and green types, but no one really talks about the differences in the agronomy on the rest of the course, right? And I actually think that the difference between chipping and hitting iron shots out of Bermuda rough compared to bluegrass rough is actually more stark than the difference between putting on Bermuda and bentgrass. And my friend Twitterless Steve has talked a lot about this before with Patrick Cantlay, right? Where Patrick Cantlay is a player that his baseline is always lowered on Bermuda courses, and it's not that his putting actually gets that much worse. It's that his tee to green gets that much worse. And a lot of players will talk about how they really don't like chipping or hitting iron shots out of Bermuda rough, especially when it comes to chipping. It's almost like a different technique. So one thing that I've been looking at is tee to green performance on courses with Bermuda rough, because again, everyone wants to talk about the differences between Bermuda and backgrass putting. But like, if you actually dig into it, Cantley is a good example where it's like the thing that actually seems to trip him up is the Bermuda rough, not the Bermuda greens. So I think that's something to pay attention to. Just throwing a hundred today. Needed that rest last week to feel recharged. Um, comp course history and course history. TPC Southland, pretty, pretty average, slightly below average in how predictive course history is here. There are certainly players that seem to show up here every year your Brooks's, your DJ's, your JT's, and Daniel Berger's. But, you know, in my opinion, the reason why they have so much success here is not because they have some secret elixir with TPC Southwind. It's because they are really good, and TPC Southwind is a course that is going to consistently reward the best ball strikers. So, you know, I don't think it's a course like Sedgefield or Augusta where you get this bump regardless of form. I think, you know, in my opinion, recent T-degree form is way more important than someone's course history here. Um, uh, so the courses that I think you want to be looking at, and I already talked a little bit about how the agronomy here is different and you want, uh, players that are comfortable chipping and hitting out of Bermuda rough. So the biggest one for me is Eastlake because it's really hot. You got this unpredictable, sticky Bermuda rough, Zoysia fairways, a little tougher scoring conditions, a lot of medium length to longer par fours. 
you know, the only real difference between those courses is that Southwind has much easier green complexes. Um, but that's a really good one. I probably like that one the most. I like Innisbrook a lot too. Kind of less similar agronomy, but you know, similar scoring conditions, a lot of mid irons. You're going to see a lot of the same names pop up. Sam Burns, Abraham answer, JT Webb. Um, and then the two that I thought were a little interesting, although I, I think these are a little more imperfect, but look at those Honda leaderboards. Lee Westwood, Daniel Berger, Justin Thomas, Tommy Fleetwood. You know, that's another course where you have to have really strong tee to green play and you got to keep the ball and play off the tee. Honda has a little bit more trouble, but TPC Southwind still is a lot of water. I mean, it's top 10 in penalty stroke. So I think PGA National is a good one to look at. And then just from a pure agronomy and honestly heat standpoint, um, Jackson Country Club, where they host the Sanderson Farms, it's got those exact same champion Bermuda grass greens, really hot, sticky Bermuda rough. It's a lot easier at Jackson. Um, the scoring conditions, obviously, and certainly more of a putting contest. But just from like a climate, aesthetics, and agronomy, like being able to play in the heat, being able to play out of Bermuda rough, being comfortable on champion Bermuda, I think there's some correlation there. Not a lot of the same players are going to be playing a fall swing event as they are WGC, but just right off the top of my head, Sam Burns loses in a playoff in Memphis, wins at Jackson a couple months later. Um, all right. So I threw all this together in a model and, uh, here's who it's shot out. Number one, Justin Thomas, who has been there a lot. Uh, Tony Finau has made like a hard, a hard charge to what Tony Finau is like. It's again, whole other podcast. Like there are, there are different ways to win golf tournaments, right? Uh, like there are dominant wins and, you know, gaining a bunch of strokes putting wins. Like what Tony's, Tony's doing from tee to green right now is honestly some pretty provocative stuff. So JT one, Finau two, Rory three, Russell four, Russell Henley four. I don't think Russell Henley deserves just first name basis. I'm recording this on Saturday evening. Um, haven't gotten a chance to watch much of the Wyndham. I'm told Russell Henley's in contention. I'm sure that will end well. And I say that as somebody who bet him. But yeah, he's going to look good at this course too. Um, Russell Henley's fourth. Cameron Smith, five. Scotty Scheffler, six. Sam Burns, seven. Bermuda Burns, that's going to be a popular one. Xander Shoffley, eight. Daniel Berger, nine. Shane Lowry, 10. Aaron Wise, 11, who's... I think also playing pretty well this week. Another guy that I bet last week. Chris Kirk, 12. Mito Pereira, 13, who I think I very much like Mito this week, coming off four four straight missed cuts. Um, 14, Matt Fitzpatrick. 15, Sung J.M. 16, Grumpy J. All the way down there at 16 in the model. I think this is a, not a great course for him, but I think, I think he's going to make some noise in the FedEx Cup playoffs. I think we're probably going to see some... Next week might be the week. I, you know, I don't know what's going on with the Wilmington course, um, but he's performing way below his baseline. Um, Will Zaltor, 17. Jordan Spieth, 18. Brendan Steele, 19. Keegan Bradley, 20. You know, Brendan Steele, it, it, I'm teasing this podcast a lot. I did a podcast with Joseph Omani, who works with PGA Tour Pros. I'm going to release it uh, Eastlake. It's really good. We talk about a lot of the misconceptions about stats and the work that he does with PGA tour pros and how he breaks down courses. And it was, I mean, I think the listeners of the podcast will enjoy it. I it's, it's like definitively like, this is my bag, like one for you, one for me, this one, like may have been for me, like, you know, like it's a little in the weeds, but I still think people enjoy it. Anyway, I asked him, um, who's like really underrated right now. And he was like, Brendan Steele's playing incredible golf. And I was like, I know. I'm seeing that too. Brendan Steele's playing unreal golf right now. Um, so I think that uh, he is going to be somebody to look at. You know, the tricky thing is, like, this podcast is really, it's not a DraftKings podcast, right? Like, <laughs> this podcast is really just about identifying the players that make the most sense for me given my numbers Right. I actually like 
the concern with a guy like Brendan Steele this week is going to be the ownership, not his course fit, right? Because I imagine, although, you know, when I make a good case for somebody, it definitely helps. Like, I, I don't think that I'm reinventing the wheel with some of the stats that I look at, right? Like, I imagine that there's going to be a lot of, or at least some, I love when there's not, but sometimes there's, mainly there's a lot of ownership on a lot of the popular guys. Um, uh, so that, you know, I'm not going to talk more about Brendan Steele. I think we're already at the hour mark. I'll just quickly give you the guy that I actually think is going to win this week. And I don't know if he's going to be that, uh, I'm done obviously saying like, Oh, this guy's going to be under the radar. They're never under the radar. Uh, anymore. So I'm not saying he's under the radar, but I think you have to, um, you have to kind of look a little bit deeper with the stats because he hasn't been playing as well lately. Um, but I think Colin Morikawa is going to win this golf tournament. I feel that like pretty strongly. Uh, and in two appearances here, he's gone 20th, 26. He's gained strokes in both ball striking categories, both appearances. I really like this golf course for Colin Morikawa. He is really good off the tee. He is one of the more accurate drivers of the ball on the PGA Tour, even in a down year. You want to talk about a guy that consistently is able to hit a fade like Fabian Gomez is talking about? Colin Morikawa, unless he's still trying to hit a draw. But I remember watching him even at uh, at the Open, and it looked like he had, he had figured out the fade a little bit. And that's the thing, too. He actually, he's not playing as bad as his results uh, may look like he gained 2.6 on approach through two rounds at St. Andrews only missed a cut because he lost 1.3 around the green and 1.4 putting. And I actually, I didn't think either of those, I know it's like throw, he's thrown people off a scent with that weird St. George's win. I didn't think St. Andrews was a good course for him at all. You do not hit enough iron shots at St. Andrews to really accentuate what Morikawa is good at. And this is the opposite of that. You got like almost 70% of shots coming from between 125 and 200 yards. And you look at like long-term baseline from those yardages. Like I only look at like proximity long-term, right? Colin Markov is still the best in the world. He's still the best middle iron player in the world, right? And even if you look a little bit more recently, like JT hops him a little bit, but like he's still been He's still been right, right up there, right? Um, so it's just going to come down to the short game and the putting, which has been really hit or miss this year. Um, but I think he's one of those guys where, you know, he's won at the concession before, which wasn't champion Bermuda, but it was hot Florida golf, Bermuda, kind of medium scoring conditions, sixth at Eastlake last year, right? So... And it's, again, like, I think you're going to be able to, they, they tend to drop Morikawa a little bit in, in the betting markets a little bit more quickly than some of the other guys. And listen, man, he played twice overseas. Uh, and right before that, he was a 36-hole leader at the U.S. Open, finished fifth at the U.S. Open, right? But I think that, you know, the perception around him is that he's been pretty disappointing. But 16 starts this year. He's got 12 cuts, eight top 30 finishes, top five at two of the majors. Um, so he hasn't been maybe as consistent as some of his peers, but I think this is a really good, again, I'm not going to say buy low opportunity on Colin Morikawa, but I think this is a really good course fit. I really do. And I think he's coming in with some, some sneaky, okay ball striking for him. Um, so that's it. That's the only guy I'm gonna I'm gonna give away that I'm probably gonna bet will be Morikawa. Um, I think I'll be able to get like a twenty plus for sure in this field. It's got everyone. This field has everyone. There's no way they can put Morikawa below twenty right now, right? You put do you put Finau below Morikawa? I think you. I think books would. Obviously, JT Rory. Cam Smith, you're putting below Morikawa. Scotty Scheffler, you're putting below Morikawa. Are you putting Xander below Morikawa? I wouldn't put it past Bucks. You're putting Rom before Morikawa, right? Are you putting Zalatoris before Morikawa? Like you, like you might, right? So Berger's going to be priced up. Sam Burns, I, I, I just mentioned with the the course history. I'm not 
not going to say the words 30, but you start, you start running through all these names and it's like, you know, it's a, what have you done for me? Wait, we type thing with a lot of these books. And I, I think there'll be something out there. Nice. on Morikawa. I think he's going to win this tournament. All right. Uh, that will do it for me. Uh, you can find me back on this podcast feed on Tuesday morning. Like I said, we're going to be doing a welcoming cav to rickrungood.com. I'm going to have him on the podcast. I'm going to talk about ownership with him. We're going to talk about don't worry our hashtag picks for the week too, but talk a lot about ownership, talk a lot about he's not going to necessarily give his secrets away, but kind of why ownership is so important, right? Last time we did a little bit more of the strategic stuff. And every time I've done some of the more strategic stuff, people seem to really like it. So um, I'm really excited for him. I'm really proud that he's a part of our growing team. Um, And I want to have him on to kind of get a chance to get people more familiar with him and talk to people about what he does. And also we'll talk some talk some Memphis as well because I'm excited for this event bad golf course great field though um and then uh Monday odds checker article we there was no like real announcement about this again I was traveling the last week and Rick is obviously incredibly busy but we're changing the scramble format to like a more focused betting show on that'll come out on Tuesdays right like no more live shows again I appreciate all the um the people that were asking about the scramble, but Rick wanted to do it. And I go with Rick, whatever, you know, the the scramble was his kind of conception and idea. So he, he kind of thought a more focused betting show, um, would be more conducive, I guess, to listeners. It's not the correct usage of that word, but yeah, just shows that we're getting to the end of the podcast. So, uh, check out me and Rick's betting show for more of, again, my hashtag picks on uh on tuesday uh i do an article for golf.com now which is pretty cool it's pretty cool to like be their betting guy um they're massive uh and so i was i'm you know honored to write a betting column for them uh that comes out i think every tuesday or wednesday i give like it's a little bit different i run through a bunch of different types of bets it's not just kind of the outright guys that i usually talk about on podcast. So check that out on golf.com, um, every eh, Wednesday morning, maybe Tuesday afternoon. Um, and that will do it. I guess, uh, best of luck with your, uh, with your bets at, uh, the Wyndham this weekend. And we will see you next time. Cheers.